Everybody walks through this door eventually. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or where you're from, everyone reaches this point. Even celebrities. We all take a journey after we die. It's the journey we've been exploring in the last three episodes. What happens immediately after you die, what heaven is like and what it takes to live there, what hell is like and how we can choose between the two. Celebrities go through that as well. How do they fare? What is their afterlife like? Well, we just happen to have some first-hand accounts about what's been happening in the afterlife with some really big names. Some juicy gossip about Isaac Newton, Aristotle, and Martin Luther. Who are they? Okay, so our source on this lived about 200 years ago, so there's not going to be anyone who has any Twitter followers on this list. But Emanuel Swedenborg's often overlooked accounts of the state after death for some of the most famous people in history can tell us about our own potential paths as well. Plus, there's some drama here. What happens when Newton is challenged on his scientific beliefs by angels? Is there a disconnect between Aristotle and his followers? What did an angel warn Martin Luther not to do? Let's find out what happened to each one after they'd gone through this door. Isaac Newton is recognized as one of the most influential scientists of all time and a key figure in the scientific revolution. He was a mathematician, physicist, astronomer, theologian, author, and philosopher. Newton built the first practical reflecting telescope and used prisms to develop sophisticated theories about light and color. Swedenborg's story about Sir Isaac Newton in the afterlife shows that a celebrity known for his incredible mind and his passion for scientific knowledge doesn't stop learning just because he dies. Swedenborg was born when Newton was 45 years old. And at age 22, Swedenborg was reading Newton's Principia every day and really wanted to meet him. It seems like that meeting never happened on Earth, but they did meet in the spiritual world after Newton had died and Swedenborg had his spiritual awakening. So to a scientist like Swedenborg, Newton would have been a celebrity, and Newton had similar interests to Swedenborg, so it makes sense that they were drawn to each other in spirit. And just a heads up on where this is going to go. The description of their encounter takes a sharp turn into becoming this in-depth lesson about the nature of light and color and the spiritual world and the physical world. And then it also turns into a lesson about how we can all keep learning in the afterlife As with all of Swedenborg's experiences, this is just what happens. The nature of an encounter dealing with one thing quickly starts to teach us about other aspects of reality. But that's what we're going to go through here. So, back to color. On Earth, Newton had published his theory about the origin of color in a book called Optics. He believes that he had proven that light contains colored particles, which cause color when they make contact with objects. He got pushback on that from other scholars, and more than a century after his death, his theory was proven wrong. Though on Earth, Newton stood by his theory, he was intimidated by the controversy and the criticism around it, and for quite a while withdrew from the public debate about the origin of color. Little did he know that those debates and discussions would continue in the afterlife and that angels would be involved. Swedenborg begins the story of meeting Newton in the afterlife in an unpublished manuscript that is known as Draft of Supplements or Last Judgment Posthumous. Concerning colors, 
Newton said that in the world he had believed them to arise from substances flowing continually from the solar ocean as differently colored particles of matter and attaching themselves constantly to like particles in the objects of the world. As you can see, Newton was still concerned with similar things in the afterlife. And as Swedenborg reports, when all of us first cross over, we'll have the same beliefs and ideas that we held on Earth. But when some angels weighed in about spiritual and physical conditions, they had some corrections for Newton. The angels explained to him a different understanding of what color is. They said there are colors in the spiritual world too, but they're more vivid, splendid, and diverse than the colors on Earth. The angels told Newton that in the spiritual world, the divine love and wisdom flowing out from the Lord appears as their sun. The substance of that sun is pure divine love, and the light coming from it is pure divine wisdom. The angels said that the two kinds of light flowing out from the spiritual sun are a flaming light and a white light. The angels also explained that there are not any color particles in that light. Instead, color is a result of how that light is received by angels and spirits and objects, and that in heaven, colors show the way that angels in the area are receiving the Lord's divine love and wisdom. This is visually seen as light shining down from the spiritual sun onto angels in their surroundings, resulting in colors that correspond to their states of mind and heart. So rather than being dictated by the light, each color is a particular response to the light. The angels told Newton that colors are not material substances because light is not a material substance. In the spiritual world, light, color, even love and wisdom all have spiritual substance instead of material substance. The angels continued by saying that in the physical world too, light is not a material substance but is a natural one and flows into objects affecting them. They explained that therefore colors are not caused by colored light atoms, but are instead the result of atoms in objects responding to the light that's flowing in. It's amazing that the angels seem to be teaching Swedenborg and Newton about physical light, but clearly they had to use terms that Swedenborg and Newton could understand. We can't know for sure, but the angels seem to be communicating something more akin to our modern understanding of light as electromagnetic radiation and of how light and matter interact. We actually explored these assertions by the angels in two of our shows, Spiritual Secrets About Color and Spiritual Light. We got a physical chemist who studies light with lasers to weigh in on how this lines up with modern science, so check those out if you want. But back to our story. At this point in the conversation, the angels took off. They couldn't seem to stay with Newton as long as he was thinking about color in such a material way. But some good spirits who could relate more directly to Newton's earthly state of mind came along, and here's what they said to him to try to shift his point of view. Think, please, of colors not from the perspective of some small prism or the way they appear on some wall but from the perspective of the greenness of all the forests and all the grassy fields throughout the entire world in which you have been. Can you conceive of a continual emanation from the sun of a green color only? Can you conceive too of a continual flowing in of a gray or stony color into the mountains of the whole earth and so on? Would you not then be conceiving of continuous oceans of only a green or stony color. 
tell us where they go when they cease. Do they go off into the universe? In the afterlife, things are worked out so that we're all taught by people who can relate to and reach our current state of mind. And this is what happened here. After describing this appeal to Newton's sense of logic, Swedenborg finishes the story. After thinking about the matter more deeply, Newton said, Now I know that colors are modifications of light in objects in whose forms light is variegated in accordance with the forms of their constituents giving rise to colors. These are Newton's own words, which he wishes me to communicate. So Newton recants, but there's more. Another conversation that Swedenborg witnessed between Newton and angels was on the topic of a vacuum. And again, the angels seem kind of opinionated about it. Newton said that in the world he had believed a vacuum to be possible. But when angels perceived that the idea he had of a vacuum was an idea of nothingness, they turned away, saying that when an idea of nothingness enters, any idea of the essence of things perishes. And so does any idea of the thought, intellect, affection, love, or will in people and angels, which are impossible in a state of nothingness. So to the angels, something about holding an idea of nothing is toxic to their ability to understand the interconnected whole. And seeing the conditions of the afterlife firsthand, Newton could now see that a vacuum didn't make any sense because there he was, he was out of his physical body in the physical world, and yet he was thinking, feeling, acting, and breathing. Beyond physical matter was not nothingness, but an existence more full of something than he could have imagined. Newton said he knew that divinity, the one who is, fills everything, and that he was aghast at the notion of a vacuum as nothing, because this was a totally destructive notion. He seemed to even view it as a spiritually dangerous notion. Newton said that something and nothing are completely antithetical, so antithetical that he is horrified at the idea of nothing, and he guards himself against it, so quite a, a reversal here, to keep his mind from falling into a state of insensibility. According to what Swedenborg saw, this brilliant scientist, Sir Isaac Newton, was willing to keep studying and learning in the afterlife with a sincere heart, and so his knowledge continued to deepen. I spoke with Newton several times. He is an utterly sincere person and dwells among his own colleagues and is loved. He told me that he now knows that the Lord is the Son of the angelic heaven and that all light comes from him which in essence is divine intelligence and is what gives intelligence to angels and also to humankind. He said that colors there appear much brighter than in the world and in far greater variety and that colors there arise from the modification of the divine light in angels and in people on earth and that it is from this that the varieties of intellect arise. I love the idea that we can keep learning in the afterlife. I just think there must be some really awesome scientific experiments that go on in heaven. Right. Only you're not just uncovering a knowledge of how things work, but spiritual wisdom at the same time. Yeah, it seems like Newton's having a great time in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. You know, he's getting to continue to develop his passions yeah. and, and interests there. And so now you've got a, another story for us, right? Yes. This is about someone even further back in earthly history, Aristotle. Swedenborg made this interesting observation that there was a big spiritual difference between Aristotle and many of the people who later studied his writings. 
Aristotle was an ancient Greek philosopher and scientist who numbers among the greatest philosophers of all time. He did not believe in the Greek pantheon of gods, but rather in one God who is the unmoved mover and first cause. Aristotle's extensive writings cover topics such as physics, biology, zoology, metaphysics, logic, ethics, the arts, rhetoric, psychology, linguistics, economics, and government. The writings of Aristotle have had a major impact on world thought. They powerfully influenced later Greek philosophers, Christian and Muslim scholars, and Western science, culture, and society all the way up to the present day. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy reads, Aristotle's theories have provided illumination, met with resistance, sparked debate, and generally stimulated the sustained interest of an abiding readership. What would Aristotle himself think of the countless ways his writings have been studied and used? Well, Swedenborg got a glimpse of that in the spiritual world. He tells a story that begins with him becoming aware of some spirits near him. I became aware of a sound spreading from below, this is Swedenborg, at my left side and up toward my left ear. Of course it's Swedenborg. <laughs> I could tell that some spirits were trying to get out of that region, but I could not tell what kind they were. When they did finally get out, they talked with me, saying they had been experts in logic and metaphysics and that their thinking had been totally absorbed in such matters, but solely for the purpose of sounding erudite and thereby gaining status and wealth. They complained that now their lives were wretched because that had been their only reason for learning, which meant that their learning had not served to develop their reasoning faculties. Their speech was mumbling and slow. But then Swedenborg became aware of another pair of spirits above his head. These two spirits were talking to each other and Swedenborg realized that one of them was Aristotle who came near to his right ear and began talking to Swedenborg. He could tell that Aristotle was completely different than the prideful scholars who had been complaining about their lot. Aristotle was a philosopher filled with a delight in learning and understanding and with a genuine desire to know the truth. From this delight, he thought deeply and came up with ways to express the thoughts and words. The words were intended to be applied to life. This was very different than the scholars who simply collected a lot of terms and used them to sound impressive and superior. For them, Swedenborg wrote, philosophy was a means of going insane rather than becoming wise. That's a strong statement, and ultimately, this approach brought them darkness instead of light. The reason is, for all of us, ideas are supposed to lead toward deeper knowledge about how to live a good and useful life, one that is connected with God and the neighbor. This approach opens the mind more and more to heavenly wisdom. But collecting ideas just for prestige or personal gain runs the risk of shutting down our spiritual rationality in the afterlife. Here's more of Swedenborg's conversation with Aristotle. Next, I spoke with him about the science of analysis and was given the opportunity to say that a little child in half an hour could say more in a philosophic, analytic, and logical vein than he could describe in several volumes. This is because all human thought and speech is analytic and the laws governing it come from the spiritual world. And Swedenborg continues, when people try to think artificially on the basis of terms, they bear some resemblance to dancers who want to learn dancing by studying motor nerves and muscles. If that were what they focused on when dancing, they would hardly be able to move a toe. Without any of the science, though, they move all the motor nerves throughout their body, and by extension, their lungs, diaphragm, trunk, arms, 
neck, and so on, as would require more than a few volumes to describe. This point of Swedenborg's really rang true for Aristotle. Aristotle agreed with all this, saying that people who learn this way are going about it backward. Those who want to be fools, he added, are welcome to continue in this fashion. He is on a roll, but they should always be thinking about the purpose and thinking deeply. The takeaway is, purpose or usefulness is key to whether knowledge will truly serve us and stay with us or disintegrate into foolishness in the afterlife. It's like the difference between solid rock and a pile of sand. All this shows why Aristotle had a passion for bringing concepts down into words that offer guidance about how to understand life and how to live. What Swedenborg learned anyway is that he was deeply dedicated to what is useful. Next, Aristotle told Swedenborg about the idea of God he had had while he was on earth. He then showed me how he had viewed the supreme deity. He had envisioned the deity as having a human face and a head encircled with rays of light. He said that he now knew that that divine human being is the Lord and that the ring of light rays depicts the divine emanation that comes from him and flows not only into heaven, but into the physical universe, managing and governing them both. At this point in the conversation, a strange thing happens, as if it hasn't been weird enough already. Swedenborg saw a vision of a woman who was reaching out her hand to touch Aristotle's cheek. This is an example of a common occurrence in the spiritual world where things going on in people's minds get portrayed as visualizations around them. Swedenborg remarked on this to Aristotle, who said that he himself had actually experienced this same vision while he was on earth. Some angelic spirits nearby explained what this imagery was about. Some angelic spirits said that the ancients sometimes saw such beings whom they called palaces. The vision had come to him from spirits who relished ideas and reveled in thought while living as people on earth in antiquity, but did not use philosophy. Because he had such spirits with him and delighted them with his deep thinking, they presented such a woman to him as a representation. Deep thinkers like Aristotle had access to wisdom passed down from very ancient scriptures, which also connected them with ancient peoples in the spiritual world. In the afterlife, we'll be able to send messages to others using visible mental imagery. And this was a message to Aristotle saying, we like what you're thinking. The last thing Aristotle told Swedenborg was that on earth, he had believed in a human soul that would survive bodily death, but the concept he had was that it was some vague, invisible force. There in the afterlife, he was now learning from experience about the vibrant and tangible life of the spirit after death. So again, here was a passionate student of life learning more after death, just as we all will be able to keep on learning forever. And about the students of Aristotle's writings, Obviously, not all people who study Aristotle are foolish. Swedenborg was just particularly struck in his contact with Aristotle to notice the spiritual contrast between an arrogant approach to philosophy compared with the approach of a philosopher who had a genuine love for truth. Swedenborg writes, Aristotle formed his philosophical system in a natural order. He first obtained a mental image of his thought and from it formed his philosophical system in order to describe it and, so to speak, paint it for others. But his followers went about it in an upside-down order. Because of this, they are always casting themselves into stupidity and darkness concerning inward qualities, while Aristotle advances into light. 
I imagine that insight even helped Swedenborg on his own journey into philosophy and theology. As Swedenborg says over and over, motivation is everything. Yes, like deep study and thinking can come either from a love for the truth and a desire for it, or a desire for your own self-importance. And Swedenborg was very keen on figuring that difference out in his own spiritual life, as well as passing on any insights he had about that to others. Okay, so now, Jonathan, you are gonna tell us our third and final, and I would hmm. say most dramatic celebrity story. Yes, we're talking about Martin Luther. Now, Swedenborg grew up in a Lutheran country. His father was a Lutheran bishop. So Luther would have loomed large in his mind. And as anybody who's read any Swedenborg knows, he strongly challenged the doctrine of salvation by faith alone that Luther championed, right? That's right. But in the story Swedenborg tells of meeting Luther in the afterlife, they ended up forming a good friendship. Martin Luther was a German professor of theology a composer, a priest, a monk, and a seminal figure in the Protestant Reformation. Luther rejected teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church of his day, especially the practice of indulgences, which promised people a reduction of punishment in the afterlife, in exchange for money or external actions. This practice had increasingly become a tool to enrich corrupt church leaders. Luther confronted this corruption in writing and preached a whole new form of Christianity, which gave divine authority to the Bible rather than to popes and priests. He translated the Bible and made it available to the common people. And he preached that salvation had nothing to do with deeds and actions, but was given by the grace of God solely through faith in Jesus Christ. Swedenborg saw that by the mid-1700s, these two extreme ideas about salvation, earning it through external deeds, which Luther rebelled against, or passively receiving it through faith alone, which Luther passionately advocated, had both caused huge problems to the inner spirit of the Christian churches. Each view was missing something, and Swedenborg had an interesting story to tell about Martin Luther in the afterlife. Now, spoiler alert, in Swedenborg's story of Luther, we're going to see the case of a person at first caught up in a lot of negativity and self-importance, but who later was brought back in touch with his own deeper goodness. And this will be the story for most of us. We'll start out our new chapter in the afterlife still tangled in some negativity that we became attached to, but we'll be gently led along toward positive change at whatever rate we're willing to follow. To begin the story, we'll see the first stage of Luther's afterlife journey. Because of his passion to confront corruption and work for reform, Luther entered the afterlife with a habit of taking great delight in ardent arguments about belief. As for Luther, from the moment he arrived in the spiritual world, he was an ardent evangelist for and defender of his own theological teachings. As the number of people from earth who agreed and favored his position grew, his impassioned championing of those teachings only increased. Swedenborg saw Luther in the world of spirits at first living in a house very much like his earthly home. In the middle of the home, he had set up a chair on a low platform. Luther would sit on that chair with his front door open, waiting for people to come in and hear his teachings. He would actually line people up in rows according to how well they favored his views. People who were in strong agreement with Luther's teachings were placed closest to him up front, and those who were in less agreement would be placed at the back. He would lecture for a while, then break for questions. 
but he always used the questions to get back to the main point of his lecture. Because of all the approval he was receiving, Luther's ability to persuade people grew stronger. He adopted a style of persuasive speaking that's so effective in the spiritual world that listeners actually lose the ability to think differently than the speaker. The type of persuasion, actually a form of incantation that he had been practicing, draws its power from self-love. Eventually, that self-love leads the style of discourse to become such that when anyone contradicts what you're saying, you attack not only the point being made, but also the person who is making it. I noticed that he had a communication with those who do not wish to learn but to teach. Such people take away from others all freedom of speech by imposing their own opinions as if they were from God and by assailing all who contradict them. Swedenborg reports that soon Luther was forbidden from practicing this kind of persuasive behavior. When he tried, he would experience the effects of spiritual law. The domineering energy he was putting out would bounce back at him, and he would suffer torments and would have to stop. He was only allowed to try to convince others through reasoning and argumentation, which would allow the listeners more freedom to accept or reject the ideas. Luther had fallen victim to the pitfalls of his own passion for reform and to his worldly success. After all, whole kingdoms adopted the new form of Christianity that he formulated. Luther would vehemently argue with anyone who disagreed with him. We can see the beginnings of this from his earthly writings. Luther did the world a major service by translating the Bible into the language of the common people. However, he made decisions in his translations that drew criticism. For instance, he took the famous Romans 3.28 and added a word that was not in the original language. Instead of, a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, he added the word alone, making it, a man is justified by faith alone, which became his major doctrine. When he was challenged on this, he responded in his open letter on translating, and in this response, you get a flavor of his argumentative nature. If your papist wishes to make a great fuss about the word sola, alone, say this to him. Dr. Martin Luther wants to have it so, and he says that a papist and a donkey are the same thing. For we are not going to be students and disciples of the papists. Rather, we want to become their teachers and judges. I want to brag against these donkeys of mine. Are they scholars? So am I. Are they preachers? So am I. I can expound the Psalms and the prophets, and they cannot. I can translate, and they cannot. I can read the Holy Scriptures, and they cannot. I can pray, they cannot. Coming down to their level, I can use their rhetoric and philosophy better than all of them together. If any one of you can understand a preface or chapter of Aristotle, I will eat my hat. Please do not give any other answer to these donkeys, to their useless braying about that word sola, than simply this. Luther will have it so, and he says that he is a doctor above all the doctors of the Pope. Let it rest there. So it may come as no surprise that after death, Luther soon gravitated to places fueled by a love of arguing. There are places where people argue about religious matters. Their arguing sounds from outside those places like the gnashing of teeth. 
And when they are viewed within, it appears as though people are tearing each other's clothes apart. Luther also spoke with me, saying that he likes to be among the kind of people who argue over what is to be believed, because he has with him from the world a persuasive speech and authority as a result of the consent accorded him by many in his own time. Gradually, Luther found that he was driving everyone away from him because he wearied their thoughts, as Swedenborg put it. Luther complained that he couldn't find enough people to fiercely debate with about his doctrine. Then something drastic happened that allowed Luther to finally change direction, and that something was the last judgment taking place in the spiritual world. We talk about that in our show, Last Judgment. And since it was a reordering and a cleaning out of confused doctrines from the world of spirits, this event opened up possibilities for Luther himself to see things in a new way. This was the state of Luther's life all the way up to the time of the Last Judgment, which occurred in the spiritual world in 1757. Then a year after that, Luther was relocated from that first house of his to another. At the same time, he was brought into a different state of life as well. Remember the representative nature of houses in the spiritual world, as we talked about in How to Get a Home in Heaven. Moving to a new house represented a shift going on in Luther's mind. God will give all of us shakeups to help us get out of mindsets that are stuck. It was during this period that Luther began to talk with Swedenborg and also to consider that his own doctrines might not be correct. He remembered a time on earth when an angel had come to him. Luther has said that when he decreed faith alone, an angel of the Lord warned him not to. However, he thought to himself that if he did not reject works, there could be no separation from Catholic theology. So in spite of the warning, he insisted on it. Wow, Luther had been warned by an angel. This goes to show that even a direct message from heaven can be ignored because our free will is real. God's guidance is constant, but we make our own choice, and then God will work with those choices in whatever way is possible, as was happening with Luther. Luther was now doubting his former fierce convictions. Angels managed to convince him that faith isn't real or saving without being united to good actions in life, but he had great difficulty hanging on to that belief. Luther repented and labored with all his might to free himself from falsities, because he could not enter heaven until he did, but as yet without success. He also prayed to the Lord to be able to retreat from his falsities, and received the reply that the ability would be granted if he could accept it. For that reason, he was sent from one society to another, in which there were people in whom life was joined to faith but he was nevertheless unable to stay long because it conflicted with his life's delight. For any of us, it'll be hard to let go of mistaken ideas if we've become very attached to them, especially if we feel that we've come up with those ideas ourselves and have gotten affirmed for doing so. This is because we also become attached to whole spiritual communities that agree with those ideas. But again, this is not necessarily the end of the story. Luther's situation might sound hopeless, like this poor guy could never change, that he was blocked out of heaven by his own false ideas and pride. But the angels were seeing it differently. 
they could see there was hope for him because when in a tranquil state, Luther did believe in the importance of living a good life, even if he preached that it had nothing to do with salvation. The angels who examined people informed me that this leader was in a state of openness to change because since his youth, before he ever began the Protestant Reformation, he had taken to heart the teaching that goodwill has the highest priority. This is why in both his writings and his sermons, he had taught so beautifully about goodwill. It became clear from this that the idea of justification by faith alone had taken root in his outer earthly self, but not in his inner spiritual self. So Luther began to fluctuate between two different states of mind. Some people have two states, one when engaged in discourse, another when thinking to themselves. In the first state, people are present in the physical body and in its conscious awareness because they are caught up in their lower thought, which is connected with speech. At that time, they also experience a pleasure in speaking, prompted for the most part by pride in their learning. But in the second state, people are present in their spirits because they are thinking withdrawn from the body. This was the case with Luther. Being prompted by the gratification of a claim, he experienced the pleasure of his life when speaking, and he did this on the subject of faith alone in accordance with his doctrine. However, when he pondered to himself, he thought in support of good works. Thinking in this way when by himself remained in him from boyhood, because that was the religion he was born into and in which he became a monk. This fluctuation back and forth was helping to gradually weaken Luther's mistaken ideas and pride and revive a deeper belief in the importance of living a good life that was still there in his heart. Swedenborg writes, we then developed a closer relationship and he began confiding in me. Once he'd become thoroughly convinced that he had based his central doctrine of justification by faith alone on his own ideas and not on the Word, he allowed himself to be taught about the Lord, goodwill, true faith, free choice, and even redemption. And all this teaching was based exclusively on the Word. Swedenborg added that Luther came to prefer these new beliefs and would even laugh at his former beliefs. Luther said, it was all because my goal was to separate from the Roman Catholics and the notion of faith alone was the only way to pursue and achieve that. Therefore, I'm not surprised that I wandered off into error. It does surprise me, he continued, that people did not notice the statements in sacred scripture that contradict my teachings, even though such statements are standing there in plain sight. It just goes to show that the Lord has tremendous patience with us all, no matter how far off in the course of our lives we may get with different beliefs or actions. Yeah, it seems like if you have any desire to live a good life buried in there somewhere, the Lord is going to find it, set it free, and help it grow at whatever rate we're willing to let that happen. And crossing into the afterlife can give us a whole new beginning if there's anything at all in us that's willing to change. And that brings us to the end of our three stories of celebrities in the afterlife. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for hanging out. It's been my pleasure. So, some fascinating developments in the lives of very influential people. But in a way, 
It doesn't matter what happens with celebrities. They're just people like you and me. I think the takeaway is that since we already know some of their stories, we can see that this story goes on. Newton continued to learn and develop his views on the nature of reality. Aristotle maintained his clear and purposeful thinking. Luther continued his interaction with the theology that was a central part of his life. What's going to continue for you? What in you is going to be able to blossom and upgrade once you can compare notes with angels on it? Where are you going to go next? That's been the point of the whole series. In the first episode, we looked at what happens immediately after you die and how that relates to the life that we're already living. And then we looked at hell, what it is and why it is and why you would or wouldn't want to go there. We looked at heaven and how you can be building your house there by what you're thinking and feeling right now. This journey has been about how life continues on. Because as we already know, how we spend our time through each door lays the foundation for how we enter the next phase. And understanding the progression and the big picture gets us ready so that when this door eventually shows up, it's not fear of the unknown, it's excitement. Because there's so much more to the story. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com. And we share all the content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider joining our community of sustaining supporters by signing up to give a monthly donation. Go to otle.cosvox.com and follow the prompts to set up a recurring donation at a value of your choice. Any amount helps. Our sustaining supporters are the backbone of what we do at Off the Left Eye and allow us to continue to create high quality programming. Your support helps the ideas in our content reach and nourish thousands of people every week around the globe. We couldn't do it without you. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins.